The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Today's sermon, if you've got a handout there, you'll note we are going to look at Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19, and the, t- the title today is Jesus Calls the Twelve Apostles. We will talk about more than the Twelve Apostles, but That is the heart of that passage in 12 through 19. There are other things that are mentioned there. We can't exhaust all of those, but we'll give attention to what we think are the priorities as we continue to go through this narrative. Some of you may be thinking, why are we starting the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6? Why did we skip the first five chapters? Well, we didn't skip the first five chapters. If you have a good memory, You will remember that precisely a year and three months ago, or a year and four months ago, we were preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And we were going, we started in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and we were going verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. We went for several months, actually, and got all the way up to Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. That's where we left off before the world fell apart and came off the wheels with COVID. And then we, that was around March 8th. 2020, a long time ago. Then we began to, as a church, as shepherds, as pastors, as preachers, give our specific attention to the crisis at hand during the time of the COVID pandemic. And so literally for the last year and four months, we've been preaching sermons tailored to what I think is a unique time, season in life, in the history of our lives, of our church, of our country, and possibly the world. And that is not an exaggeration. And many things were going on. It wasn't just COVID, if you recall. There were riots and much fear and presidential election in the aftermath of that and Black Lives Matter and Antifa and many other issues that were pressing on society that needed the attention of what God had to say about all of this. God speaks today. He's the living God. He speaks one way, objectively, and that's through scripture. And so that's why for the last 14 months, our local church, to meet the needs of our sheep, that's our priority, is to help them interpret reality and interpret life in the midst of all the confusion and the fog and the muddled thinking and the satanic deception of illegitimate spins and interpretations on what's going on in the world. There's only one clear voice, and that's from God himself. And so that's why for the last year and four months, we've been specifically looking through the lens of Scripture, what does God have to say about every single one of these issues, including this worldwide pandemic. And God did not disappoint because we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Very important doctrine that we believe that the Bible speaks to every issue in life that is important to us. It answers every question. We have complete sufficiency from God through the Bible. So that's what we have been seeing. We are thankful to the Lord to speaking to these issues very specifically for us, giving us clarity. And as a result of having clarity, we have confidence and comfort from our God. That's a blessing that God promises to his people, despite what's going on around us, even if the world is falling apart around us. That's one of the privileges of knowing Jesus Christ personally. He is, you're a child of the Father. You are secure in his hand. He cares for you. That's what Jesus said. Therefore, do not be anxious. So that's the background there. So we're going to resume. We're going to actually pick up in where we left off just a year and four months ago. 
So to jog your memory a little bit, I'm just going to give a brief survey of what happened in the first five chapters of Luke to bring us up to context. We'll go quickly, but you can just listen attentively. Maybe some of you are new and weren't even a part of the Luke studies. That's okay. But let me just give you an overview of the book of Luke first. So Luke is the third book in your New Testament, about past the midway point in your Bible. Luke is one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel, we have learned, means good news. Uh, these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are, are good news because they're about the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they came to be called the Gospels. Luke in particular, so you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here's some highlights about Luke. Luke is a person, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, even though you won't find Luke's name in the Gospel of Luke. Church tradition reliably tells us Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. You can pretty much count on that. We know from the New Testament, he is mentioned specifically three times and uh, an associate of the Apostle Paul, but he was a physician. That's what Paul called him, a doctor, Dr. Luke. So he was a medical physician. He was a Gentile. He was a friend and minister, co-minister of the Apostle Paul, traveled with Paul on a few missionary journeys. He also wrote the book of Luke, I mean, uh, the book of Acts. He wrote the book of Luke probably around 60 A.D., prior to Nero's death, prior to Paul's death. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke in 60 A.D., and then shortly thereafter he wrote the book of Acts. So the book of Luke and the book of Acts go together, like volume 1 and volume 2, complementing each other. Uh, there are 24 chapters in your Gospel of Luke in your English Bible, and it is actually the longest book in the New Testament, even though it only has 24 chapters, and Matthew has 28 chapters. Luke actually has more words, so it is longer. Uh, it was written to a Gentile audience, we believe, unlike Matthew, no doubt written to Hebrews, Israelites, Jews, very clear. Luke probably written, written by a Gentile to a Gentile audience, specifically to Theophilus, uh, a man of dignity, whoever he was. But also in general, the greater community, a Gentile audience. One of the reasons we know that is because Luke prefers the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, as opposed to the Hebrew Old Testament when he makes allusions or semi-quotes from Scripture. His purpose, pretty clear. I want to remind us because this is so significant. Luke chapter 1 Verse 1, he tells us explicitly the purpose for which he wrote this long gospel. Starting at verse 1 in Luke chapter 1, he's uh, engaging with Theophilus, verse 3, whoever this gentleman was. Could be that the apostle, or I mean Luke was trying to answer specific questions Theophilus had. Maybe Theophilus was interested in Christianity and Luke's trying to give him more information. Or maybe he's trying to evangelize Theophilus and maybe Theophilus is on the fence. So Luke wants to give him more information regarding the person of Christ and the ministry of Christ. So that's the context. Verse 2, he says to Theophilus, just as they were handed down to us, these events, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and his ministry and servants of the word. So Luke promises that he's writing an account based on first-hand witnesses of Jesus Christ and his ministry, actually even before his ministry. First-hand witnesses regarding the account of his birth. Verse 3, it 
seemed fitting for me, Luke, as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. So not only was Luke, who was educated, carefully trained, highly trained from a human perspective, he was also moved by the Spirit of God to guarantee that what he wrote down was completely accurate and without error. So it seemed fitting for me, as having investigated everything regarding Jesus, his ministry from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the purpose, verse 4. So that, in order that, for the purpose of that you may know the exact truth. Isn't that comforting? Especially in the light of the, in the world in which we live, when you turn on the news or read the headlines, you don't know if you can believe what the news says or what anybody says. But here's the Gospel of Luke. Here is our guarantee. What I am writing down, what I am presenting to you, my 24 chapters in your English Bible, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. What I am presenting to you in the Gospel of Luke is the exact truth. We don't need to quibble with it. We don't need to question it. We don't need to compare it with another gospel and say, oh, there's a contradiction, there's an error. Oh, the, the, the authors of the Bible, they were just humans anyway. They were finite, fallen, frail humans who lived 2,000 years ago. That kind of questioning is not in order in light of what Luke promised, number one. I'm giving you a first-hand account of eyewitnesses from the ministry of Jesus Christ. I'm writing down the exact truth. I've been called by God to do this. We know that from the Apostle Paul. And Luke was guaranteed to write it down without error because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's called the inspiration of Scripture. That's why we believe the Bible is inerrant. It is without error. And not only did God move the New Testament authors to write down everything exactly the way God wanted it so that what is written is the Word of God, the very words of God, literally the thoughts of the infinite, almighty God written down on paper. That's the confidence you can have when you go to your Bible. So not only did God move the New Testament authors to write it down without error, God in His grace and in His providence guaranteed the preservation of it as well through the centuries. So for 2,000 years, God can do that. He is able and he did that for us. Very important. So what a delight, what a joy to look ahead to all the Lord's days and Sundays that God's entrusted to our care. Where, oh, we get to go read Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and find out the truth about the person of Jesus and his ministry. Isn't that glorious? How comforting is that? Uh, a couple other things about the Gospel of Luke. It covers, it's not a biography of Jesus. Some people mistakenly say that the four Gospels are biographies of Jesus. They're not. They're not ancient biographies. As a matter of fact, everything you would expect in a biography of someone is not in the Gospels. You read the four Gospels about Jesus, and when all is said and done, you look in vain for a lot of personal details about Jesus. What did he look like? What happened to his dad? Tell us more about his siblings. How did he grow up for the first 30 years? I'm not going to tell you, said God. It's not a biography. That's not the point. It's very selective. And it's focused in like a laser 
on the ministry, the public ministry of Jesus Christ, which was only about three and a half years as far as we can tell, and not even the whole three and a half years. There's much that is not shared. Even that material is very, very selective. Just a few weeks or months of out that three and a half years is given to us in Scripture. God didn't give us everything we could know. He's given us everything we should know. That is sufficiency of Scripture. So it covers a three and a half year period of his ministry primarily, although it does include uh, the Gospel of Luke, his birth, and just before his birth, uh, John the Baptist, all the way to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Uh, it, the Gospel of Luke is very similar to its parallel to Matthew and Mark. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read them, there's a lot of similar stories, a lot of similar events, and they kind of go together. They're called the synoptic gospels. You can see them together kind of in harmony, kind of in stereo. It's fun to read the three of them together because you get different information from each one. Well, why do we need three gospels? Why not just one? Because I think, according to God and the Mosaic law and the way he validates truth, is always the testimony of two and three witnesses. That's a clear Old Testament principle. So he did validate the ministry of Jesus Christ through the testimony of two or three witnesses and then gave us the Gospel of John as well. So they are similar. They are not identical. Uh, by the way, Matthew was written first, probably around 50 A.D. Then Mark was probably written after that, 55 A.D. And then Luke's was third in around 60 A.D. And then John's Gospel was written probably around 90 A.D. That's the order chronologically that they were written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Guess why they're put that way in your Bible? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because that's how the early church knew they were written. Makes sense. Now, they are similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but uh, the synoptic gospels have some unique features to them. I'm more familiar usually with Matthew. That seems to be one of the more popular ones. So when you're, you read Matthew, I've taught Matthew many times. I've read it, memorized much out of Matthew. It, it, but it, it's kind of refreshing to go into Luke and you're so reminded of all these things that Matthew doesn't have. Thank you, God, for giving us Luke, because if you didn't give us Luke, we wouldn't have this amazing information about Jesus and his ministry. For example, just a few unique features to Luke to remind us. Uh, things you'll find in Luke that you won't find in the other three Gospels. The, the four Gospels together record about 30 miracles of Jesus, even though he did countless miracles for three and a half years. He did so many miracles that could not be enumerated or compiled in a book, says the Gospel of John. So... God in his wisdom was very selective in what of the gazillions of miracles Jesus did. He was going to record about 20 to 30 of those. And you can find those in the four Gospels. The Gospel of Luke gives us five miracles that are not mentioned in the other three Gospels. Individuals that you'll find in Luke that you will not find in the other three Gospels. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. That's a lot of information. The entire long, very first chapter of Luke, you just see Zechariah's name all over the place. He was a key individual. If you didn't have Luke, we wouldn't know all those details. So if we didn't have Luke, we wouldn't have the testimony of Simeon at the birth of Christ. Remember him? God used him as a prophet, very wise, respected old man, speaking a prophecy over baby Jesus. If we didn't have Luke, we wouldn't know about Anna the prophetess as well at the time that Jesus was born. As God's Spirit spoke through Anna, it says three times, as she spoke to the community of Israel. That the Old Testament is being fulfilled. The Messiah is here, said Anna, godly woman. 
we wouldn't know about her. If we didn't have Luke, we wouldn't know about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the wee little man. A wee little man was he. Wanted to see the Lord and crawled up a sycamore tree. And this beloved story, if we didn't have Luke, we wouldn't know about the thief on the cross who turned to the Lord, felt convicted, and knew that Jesus was king. He knew that Jesus was king. Somehow in that six-hour time of being crucified next to the Lord Jesus, he was able to realize and learn that Jesus was more than a man. He was king. And before that, and he was called a criminal. He was guilty. He deserved to die on the cross, the thief on the cross, as did his partner. He deserved death. He was wicked. He was evil. And that thief on the cross at the last minute turned to Jesus and said, called him Jesus by name, very personal. Remember me. Not when you get to heaven. Not remember me when you die. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's an acknowledgement that Jesus is king, the sovereign one, more than a man, deity, the judge, God. That statement is loaded of what the thief on the cross knew. It's a broken heart. It's a lowly heart. It's someone who recognizes their sin. Jesus acknowledged that. Basically, granted him forgiveness, guaranteed him, you're going to be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me in the third heaven this day because of your faith in me. What a glorious story and truth. That's in Luke. Three of the last seven sayings on the cross are in Luke that aren't in the other three Gospels. And today, this is just kind of a historical and archaeological fact that's interesting. We have manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke that date back to 250 A.D., that exist today. One of them is called P45, which means papyrus. 45. There's a copy of it in Ireland and I think in Vienna. Covers uh, several chapters of the Gospel of Luke. So that's just an overview on Luke. Now let's go ahead and look specifically at Luke chapter 6. Uh, when we get to Luke chapter 6, so far we've covered 1 through 5, just big picture reminders. Luke made a promise, okay, I'm going to give you a historical, detailed, specific account full of integrity about the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is. And over the course of 24 chapters, Luke makes the argument that Jesus Christ is a man. He descended from Adam, he's, but he's more than that. He's the God-man. He's deity. He's God in human flesh. And he came to the sinful world in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy to be Savior, to offer him as a Savior to sinners. And not just to the few or to the elite or to the righteous or to the Jews or to the religious establishment. Jesus Christ came as Savior of the world to offer him to all people, all men, all women, all children, any sinner who would acknowledge their sin. That's who Jesus offers himself to. And he will respond to those sinners who seek him in repentance. That's the theme, or many of the themes that he tries to establish about the person of Christ. And he does that. And he's given historical testimony and historical account. And he's trying to build up a case for truth and establishing truth by the testimony of two or three reliable witnesses from a Jewish point of view, but also from a legal point of view, according to the Greeks, which they would accept in a law, a court of law as well. And so that's why early on Luke is 
laying before us at length these very credible, significant people who could testify of the reality of Jesus, that he was who he said he was. And that's why so much time is given in the first chapter to Zechariah. He was a priest. Not only was he a priest, the year that Jesus was born was the most important year of Zechariah's life. He was chosen among 18,000 local priests to have the once-in-a-lifetime privilege to be selected by lot to go into the holy place to do that wonderful service called on by the Mosaic Law to offer the incense on the altar of incense. It's the same year that the Messiah was born. He's a reliable witness. He testified. And then his wife, she was a reliable witness, Elizabeth. And then Mary's testimony, she's a reliable witness. She's a mother. She would know. She knows that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's why the virgin birth is included in Luke's account. He had no human father. It's a miracle. God did that miracle. Unprecedented. would never be repeated. He is the God-man. And the virgin birth validates that. So that's what you get in the first two chapters is... Luke is mounting his evidence of these eyewitnesses, and then he brings along John the Baptist that the whole nation of Israel was looking for as a witness, prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah of Israel, and that is exactly who John the Baptist was, and he was raised up. And the whole country of Israel believed that. They followed John. For the most part, most of the Jews who heard John the Baptist preach got baptized by John, which tells you a lot of what they thought of him. He was preparing the way of the Messiah, and they didn't want to miss out. He was a reliable testimony. Guess who didn't get baptized by the ministry of John the Baptist after they heard his preaching and heard his message? The religious establishment. The religious nobility. The Pharisees. The Sadducees. Those who ran the synagogues and the temple. The guardians of Old Testament religion. The apologists of Elohim and Yahweh, the ones who had memorized and mastered all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, heard John's message and refused to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. We see all that, and we've seen all that growing in the first five chapters of Luke. Now we are in Luke chapter 6. And Luke chapter 6 actually is in the bigger context of Luke chapter 6 is Luke chapter 4, which we already saw, all the way to Luke chapter 9. So just big picture, just so you know. Luke 4 to Luke 9 is called the Greater Galilean Ministry. It will extend for over a year, and Jesus will give his time solely to Galilee. His headquarters are in Capernaum where Peter lived, and he's going into all the Galilean towns, and there were hundreds of Galilean towns. He's going to, into all the Jewish synagogues to preach to the Jews to teach the Old Testament, to give divine revelation, to declare himself as Messiah in fulfillment of the Old Testament, validating his ministry with miracles, with healing, with casting out demons. This is how he's giving his time, attention, and energy over the course of this year in the greater Galilean ministry, chapter 4 through 9. So that's the context of where we're going to be for the next several weeks. Prior to Luke chapter 4, we've seen already, Jesus had a shorter ministry from the time he got baptized and to where he had a Judean ministry down in Judah by Jerusalem and the temple. There was a short ministry, and the Gospel of John informs us about that. It's where he did his first miracle. He turned water into wine. He went down at the feast day. So that's, that kicked off his ministry. So he had the short Judean ministry, and then he goes back to Galilee, and he's going to have this extended Galilean ministry occupying nearly two years of his public ministry. 
Keep in mind that how he kicked off his ministry. He was obscure. He was unknown. He was not groomed in the schools of the sophisticated established rabbis and their oral tradition. He was an unknown commodity for 30 years for the most part because everybody was saying, who is this guy when he started preaching publicly? The religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the disciples of the Sadducees, the disciples of the Herodians, the Jewish lawyers, they were very jealous and protective of their Old Testament religion. They were in charge, and anybody else coming into their turf was a threat. And that's exactly what Jesus was. Jesus comes along, they don't know who he is, he's a threat. Where did he come from? He wasn't trained in our schools. We didn't recognize him as a rabbi. He thinks he knows everything. Why is he quoting from our scriptures? Why is he invoking the name of God? He's a nobody. Where did he come from? Nazareth? Galilee? That was their attitude. So we see that crescendo and this hostility growing in the first five chapters of Luke. And it's going to come to a head in chapter 6 and the rest. As a matter of fact, Luke gives special attentions to the growing animosity of the Pharisees and the religious establishment that absolutely and utterly despised Jesus. So after now in chapter 6, Jesus has spent roughly a year in ministry, some of that down, getting baptized and beginning his ministry in Judah and Jerusalem, some preaching, some miracles. Oh, by the way, his first public act to the world after getting baptized, going into the temple during feast day, meaning there were pilgrims from all over the world in Jerusalem. Could be millions of people that were in Jerusalem at the time. In, in broad daylight, middle of the day, during feast week, Jesus goes into the temple as an unknown, as an invader, as an uninvited guest, and cleanses the temple. He does it in a mad fury. He's yelling, he's screaming, he's turning tables over, he's throwing their money all over the place, he's yelling at them at the top of his lungs. This is all in public. They were completely humiliated and caught off guard. Who does this man think he is? Here it is a year later. I guarantee the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish establishment down in Jerusalem, they are still reeling from what happened. And their animosity and hatred for Jesus just continues to grow. So much so that they go all the way from Jerusalem and they heard that he's from Galilee and that he's up there and he's got a ministry and he's teaching. So all these leaders from Judah go up to Galilee. They're curious. They see the masses. They see the crowds they have never seen before in their life. They hear that he's doing miracles. They are curious, but they are more than curious. They're jealous. We already saw in, can't review it, Luke chapter 5, it says they saw Jesus, the Pharisees, and it said they were angry in their hearts at Jesus. For what? For doing good to people. Really for getting attention. Really for usurping what they thought was their role to control Jewish religion, to be the guardians of the Old Testament. And here's Jesus speaking authoritatively regarding the religion 
of Yahweh. And he doesn't even have the credentials. He was not ordained to do so. He's a complete outsider. That would be like if somebody, another living human being came from outer space, landed on planet Earth. Greetings, fellow human. Greetings, earthling. I want to meet a Christian. I want to, read, I want to meet the most authoritative person on Christianity. You know, the, the world today would say, oh, you need to go to Rome and meet the Pope. Because that's what the world thinks. Because Rome and the Pope is the establishment and the recognized guardians of true Christianity. That's the way it was in, Paul's day, uh, in Jesus' day. But reality is, if you wanted to introduce them to true Christianity, you could just say, oh, go meet Fred two blocks down. He's a Christian. Who's Fred? I don't know. He's, just, he's a Christian. What schools did he go to? I don't think he went to school. He just knows Jesus. He'll just tell you what the Bible says. He knows Jesus personally, as a matter of fact. He's a legitimate spokesperson for Christianity. Then if the established religion found out about that, they would just blow a cork. Well, that's what was going on here. So let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 6 now. As we're in context, a year into it, in the midst, beginning of the Galilean ministry, and I'll just follow along as I read chapter 6, verses 1 and following. And we did preach on Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and that's where Jesus uh, did a miracle on the Sabbath, and he was taken to task by the religious leaders saying, you can't do good on the Sabbath. And we're going to see that. So we talked about that. And then we'll pick up right after that. So Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened that Jesus was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. Why? Because he was hungry. Why? Because he didn't have a refrigerator or a cupboard. He had no home. He was a vagrant. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's passing through, through some grain fields on a Sabbath. That's a Saturday. And his disciples, whoever they were and however many there were, were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain with Jesus. So Jesus is with some of his disciples, and they're eating. Why? Because they are hungry. But some of the Pharisees, the religious establishment, said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David in the Old Testament did when he was hungry? King David, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, the tabernacle or temp, uh, tabernacle, and took and ate the consecrated or the holy bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone. And he gave it to his companions and they ate. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's why I'm eating on Saturday. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and he was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely, suspiciously, to trap him, threatened by him, watching him closely to see if, if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, 
He said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage. There it is. Jesus just healed a man instantaneously, uh, a miracle they've probably never seen in their life or would ever see again. And instead of rejoicing for the man who was instantly healed, it says they were filled with rage. They were blinded by their hatred of Jesus. And they discussed together what they might do to Jesus. That means they started planning at how they might shut him down. Shut him up. Arrest him. The Gospel of John tells us to kill him. They were planning this for a while. Jesus has no fear. He knows this. He doesn't go into hiding. He doesn't stop and pause and say, oh, yeah, okay, you guys are the religious establishment. You're the authorities. Here I am teaching in the synagogues, and you guys run the synagogues. I go worship at the temple, and, and you guys are in charge of the temple. You guys are the experts of the Old Testament. Yeah, you know what? I need to broker a deal with you guys. We need to get on the same page. Let's be ecumenical. Let's form a council. Let's see where we have common ground. And then go from there. No. Jesus knows the truth. He speaks only truth, and he won't compromise with the truth. They speak truth mixed with error along with evil motives. Jesus is not going to compromise with that. You cannot compromise truth and error. You know what it does? 100% of the time, it dilutes the truth. It undermines the truth. So he doesn't go into hiding. He's not driven by fear. That's why I love just reading the Gospels and reading about Jesus. Jesus is awesome. So it was at this time, verse 12. So Luke gives us these important chronological indicators through his very systematic chronological treatise, if you will, about the ministry of Jesus Christ. So these statements are very deliberate. It was at this time, what time? Well, at this time, over the last two chapters or chapter and a half, where we have seen this growing overt hostility and hatred, outspoken hostility from the Pharisees, from the religious establishment, from those of all people who should welcome Israel's Messiah. So it's with this growing outspoken hatred of Jesus. It was precisely at that time that God's Spirit moved on Jesus to do the next event that we see in 12 through 19, a year into his ministry. Keep in mind that up to this point, after a year of ministry, Jesus has called specifically many disciples. And then many disciples just watched and observed, and some maybe were healed and heard him teach. And then they just kind of glommed on, and they also became disciples. So he has many, many disciples. And we saw earlier in Luke chapter 4, particularly three different times, it said that the crowds were just growing and growing and growing. And his popularity was increasing all the more with all the people as they heard him teach and preach. And so with this growing of followers on one hand, there's a growing hostility on the other hand. That's more overt. And Jesus 
is called by the Spirit of God, okay, I've got a plan accordingly. We've got a plan. We've got a three-and-a-half-year plan. This is going somewhere. I'm going to the cross, and then we are going to lay the foundation of the church. So now is the time, as I'm led by the Father, to begin to establish the foundation and the forming of the church of Jesus Christ. That means he needs to take among all those hundreds and if not thousands of disciples and narrow it down to just a select few. It will be 12 who will move from his disciples to his apostles, and they will become the foundation of the church. And he will train them specifically for the next year and a half to two years. That's what it means in verse 12 when it says, at this time. Everything Jesus did in three and a half years, he never wasted any time. He's always on schedule. He is never in a hurry. Probably the busiest human being during his public ministry there ever was. He is never in a hurry. He does more work than anybody, and at the same time, he prays more than anybody. And he told us why in the Gospel of John. He does nothing of his own will or volition. He only does what the Father tells him to do. 100% obedient to the Father, empowered and led by the Spirit of God. Jesus always did the right thing at the right time. Everything always went to according to his schedule, to God's timetable. That's true here. It's time to begin to organize the ministry and establish the foundation and formalize the ministry that will carry on after his departure, the church. So it was at this time, verse 12, that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. So we're just going to walk through 12 through 19. And, and just glean some practical lessons from Jesus, our master, Jesus, our example. He went off to the mountain to pray. Uh, Mark says that it was his habit to go off quietly early in the morning to pray, to talk to the Father, to pray to the Father, to seek the will of the Father, to be comforted by the Father, to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. Personal relationship, personal conversation. He was the model of prayer. And it's at this point in his ministry where he's going to make one of the most important decisions that he needs to make. So what does he do? Before he makes an important decision, he goes to pray. He's going to wrestle with the Father in prayer. It says he went off to a mountain to pray, and what was the nature of his prayer? He spent the whole night in prayer to God. That is, that, there's like five English words to translate one Greek word, and it's a Greek word that is used nowhere else in the New Testament. And basically, it can be translated that he, was, he prayed all night long. He was conscious. He was aware. He was wrestling with the Father, asking for God's wisdom, the Father's wisdom. God, I'm about to make a decision. I know you want me to call some select men that I can train, that will perpetuate the ministry after I'm gone, that will lay the foundation of the church. This has to be, Father, your choice, not mine. That's how he prayed. All night long. Consciously awake, in solitude, until he got the answer he needed from the Father. That is the prayer of Jesus. This was a special prayer. This was a unique prayer. Although I would say that Jesus did pray regularly all the time, anytime he needed to make a decision about something. 
And the early church followed that example. Jesus is about to make one of the most important decisions in his life, and he spends all night in prayer with the Father, seeking the will of the Father. You know, we need to do the same thing. The early church did that. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 6 when the early church was growing and exploding, and they needed help from God, and they only had a few pastors and elders and leaders, and they needed some help uh, with practical ministry, and so they needed deacons, servants they were called. And God's going to formalize the role of deacons. And what do the apostles do? They set up a plan, and then they lay it before God, and they, the people make a decision, and before they formalize the decision and lay hands on them, it says they committed them to the Lord in prayer, Acts chapter 6, before a very important decision about these seven men. God, Father, we commit them to you. We need your wisdom. We need to do that. Isn't that a practical reminder? Question, convicting question. How many decisions or big decisions did you make this week? First of all, stop, pause, think. Oh, I made one. Second question, how many big decisions did you make this week without praying? And asking God for wisdom, asking God for help, asking God to slow you down. That's what we need a lot of times. God, I need patience. I need to wait. Help me discern your will. Bring godly counselors into my life before I make this decision. That typified the life of Christ. That typified the life of obedient disciples. Examples are all over the New Testament and even the Old Testament. Jesus needed to pray for wisdom, by the way. Question. Don't answer out loud. Answer in your own mind. Did Jesus know everything? At age 31, right here in Luke chapter... Did Jesus know everything? I would love to go around and just ask you one by one. That's a yes or no question. What do you think? No doubt some of you say yes. The answer is no. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus didn't know everything. Now, it's interesting. He knew the thoughts of his critics earlier in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 8, he knew what they were thinking. There were times where Jesus could read the minds, the hearts, and thoughts of an individual. There were times where he couldn't. We know there are things in Scripture during Jesus' ministry where he didn't know something. He didn't know the day or the hour of his return the entire time in the incarnation as a man, as the God-man. He didn't know that. There were plenty of things he didn't know. The only time that Jesus knew something was when the Father revealed it to him. Now, before Jesus was born, he existed in all eternity past with the Father and the Spirit as God, the triune God. And before he was born, Jesus was omniscient. He knew everything. And now that Jesus is glorified in heaven with the Father, Luke, or John 17, 5, Jesus knows everything. He's omniscient once again in full glory. But during his 33 years on the earth, he didn't know everything all the time. There are many times stuff he didn't know. He was completely 100% dependent upon the Father as he walked by faith. And that's why he had to seek the Father's will as to make the right decision of what men the Father wants me to choose out of these hundreds of disciples. And God revealed that to him, verse 13. And when the day came after all that prayer all night long, he called his disciples. Could have been hundreds of them. We don't know. What's a disciple? A disciple simply means a student, a learner, a follower. That's all. It's like if you're a teacher, I was a teacher for years in the classroom. I had, you know, 25 students. I'm teaching them stuff. I'm an English teacher. They're students. They're disciples. They're learners. Some of them aren't as learning as good as others. They don't all like me either. Just because you're a disciple doesn't mean you're committed to somebody or loyal to somebody or even agree with everything that they think. It's a general term, a disciple. But they were following Jesus. 
for a lot of different reasons. John 6 says that his disciples, and some of his disciples, followed him no more. They cut it off. So don't get disciple confused with apostle. So he chooses all these followers who've been exposed to his ministry and his teaching. Some were legit. Some were surface. Some were unsure. Some would betray him later. Some would scream for his blood before Pilate. Those were the disciples. And out of those, Jesus selects 12. In answer to a prayer with the Father, when day came, he called the disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, and he just began to select them as the Father and the Spirit led him. Exactly what God wanted. Now, you would think that if God the Father, if Jesus is praying, Father, send to me the 12 that you want me to have to train and pour my life into for the next two and a half years, so, and also so that they will be the foundation of the church that will go on in perpetuity forever, being the guardian of your truth and the gospel that saves sinners. Give me your 12 men. We might be thinking that God is going to give them 12 excellent, perfect, great men full of integrity. That didn't happen. They were a messed up bunch, a compromised bunch. Let's look at them. He chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. So there he gave them a formal designation. Okay, you 12, stand over here. You're on my kickball team, and we are the apostles. Go apostles! Now, apostle, specific Greek word, sent one, ambassador, representative, with delegated authority, as a spokesperson for the authority. That's who they were. So they were unique. But they were going to be trained. They needed to be trained. And that's what Jesus gives himself to. Over the course of the next two years, is training these 12 apostles. Every one of them was an answer to prayer. Even Judas, the betrayer. Can you imagine that? Dear Father, send me the 12 men that you want for me to pour my life into, to become friends with, to sacrifice for, to love to the end, to represent me. Okay, I'll give you Judas, the betrayer. I'll give you Judas, the devil. How do we know he's a devil? Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, Judas is a devil. He was a devil from the beginning. That was part of God's plan. That's Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good. Why, did, in answer to Jesus' prayer, did God give Jesus, Judas, the betrayer, the devil, who was never born again, who was never saved, probably possessed by Satan himself. Why? To accomplish God's purposes. He works all things together for good. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why was he born? To die on a cross. To be punished for sinners. To absorb the full wrath of Almighty God on behalf of sinners. That's why he came. But he had to get to the cross. And he had to get to the cross as a criminal who was guilty of sin and breaking the law. But Jesus never sinned. He wasn't guilty. So he needed somebody to betray and lie and manipulate to lie about him to get him on the cross oh I will give you Judas Judas fulfilled God's purposes to a T divine wisdom verse 13 when the day came he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles and here are the 12 Simon whom he also named as Peter by the way there are four lists of the apostles there's three in the Gospels and one in the book of Acts. Simon Peter is always listed first. We know more about Simon. Simon Peter spoke more than just about any of the apostles in the New Testament. So he was the leader and the spokesperson. We know that. 
Simon was not the first pope, but he was a lead apostle. The apostle Paul called Simon Peter one of the three pillars in the early church. So he was. So that's Simon Peter. Jesus gave him the name Peter, which means rock, the stable one, the leader, the foundation. Simon Peter. Verse 14. Then there was Andrew. That was Peter's brother. Peter and Andrew were fishermen. They weren't in the religious establishment. They were not Pharisees. They were not priests. They were not Sadducees. They weren't Egemeans. So they were not a part of this formalized, respected, established religious nobility. They were nobodies. They were hayseeds. They had accents. From the study of the Torah and the law, they were considered uneducated. That's what it says in the book of Acts. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they're confronting Peter and John, and they listen to Peter and John talking, they're like, you guys, you didn't grow up in the synagogues. And listen to your accent, the way you talk. You talk, you talk like a Galilean fisherman, unsophisticated, unrefined. Idios, that's what they called him. Uneducated. That's who they were. So they were just normal men. So that's who he's choosing. Peter and Andrew, the first two. And then uh, James and John are brothers. They're the next two. They were also fishermen. James and John and Peter and Simon all probably had a fishing industry together. They probably knew each other. They were from the same area. James and John, by the way, were cousins of Jesus because their moms were sisters. Then you think, oh, no wonder James and John's mom pleads with Jesus. Jesus, let my two sons sit at your right and left in the kingdom. We're, we're family after all. So there are four fishermen. And then next in the list is Philip and Bartholomew. And then as we go down the list, uh, the, the Gospels, they don't give us really a whole lot of information about the rest of these apostles. Uh, for the most part, they remain in obscurity. Uh, Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is also known as Nathaniel probably. In one of the, that's his second name. A lot of these apostles have a second name or a different name. So that's who Philip and Bartholomew don't know anything about them. You know what we do know about Philip and Bartholomew? Faithful. Once the Spirit of God came upon them in Acts chapter 2, faithful, courageous, confident, bold, uncompromising, died for Christ. That's what we know about them. Other than that, we don't know anything. They aren't really mentioned in the book of Acts. They're just being faithful. Just the apostles, the twelve, the apostles, the apostles. Being faithful to Jesus, single-minded, focused. We're giving our life to Christ. If we die, so be it. They did. Philip and Bartholomew. Next is uh, Matthew, verse 15. Matthew and Thomas. Matthew, also known as Levi. Matthew was the tax collector. He worked for Rome. He basically was a traitor to his own people, the Jews. Bilking them for money. Taking more than he should have. Stealing from people. Stealing from hard-working citizens. That's what Matthew, the tax collector, did. He loved Rome more than his Jewish heritage. He loved money more than he loved Yahweh. Compromiser, despised by his fellow Jews. Complete and total outcast. Dirty, filthy, unforgivable, beyond redemption. That's what the Jews thought. Tax collectors, that's Matthew. Unsalvageable. He's coupled there with Thomas. We know a little bit about Thomas, but not much. Thomas means twin. Thomas, Didymus. Thomas, 
very little, but unfortunately we know him as the doubter. He didn't doubt any more than the other 11 apostles did. They doubted a lot. But once that spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2, they were filled with power. And Thomas, like the other 10, gave his life for Christ. Tradition says he went somewhere either up in the missions fields of uh, impacting Persia or India. Another faithful saint we don't know a whole lot about. James, the son of Alphaeus, really obscure. Know nothing about James, the son of Alphaeus. Maybe James the less as opposed to the other James. Just another faithful apostle. And then there was Simon, the last two. Simon the Zealot, or the last three. Simon the Zealot could be that he was uh, a part of that faction of the zealots who hated Rome and trained secretly to carry out plots of terrorism to overthrow Rome at their own discretion and their own plan. Could be. So he hated Romans and anybody that worked with Rome. So he would be a natural nemesis of Matthew the tax collector. That would be like having a Doberman pincher and a kitty cat in your uh, kitchen table. How do you keep them from or at least the zealot. Well, only the supernatural intervention of God's love and repentance could restore relationship between Matthew and Simon the zealot, and Jesus Christ did that. It's the most powerful thing in the world, is the blood of Christ, the gospel of Christ. It changes people from the inside. And it's only the gospel of Christ that changes people at that level. So that is Simon the zealot. And then there's Judas, the son of James. Another, uh, The last two are Judas's, or Jude. Judas, the son of James. Again, we don't know a whole lot about him. Maybe also went by the name of Thaddeus in one of the other Gospels. And then finally, there's Judas Iscariot. And in the three lists of Judas Iscariot, uh, there are these monikers or descriptions of him who became a traitor, who betrayed Jesus. So he stands out. Judas Iscariot. He stands out for a lot of ways. Judas Iscariot. Judas from the town of Iscariot, which was down by Judah. All the other 11 apostles were from Galilee, and Judas was from a completely different region. Talk about an outcast. So he probably didn't even know these other 11 guys. He may have been on the outs from the beginning, but he wormed his way into the inner circle or with a special responsibility as one of the 12 apostles because over the next two years, Judas was entrusted with the money among the apostles. He was the treasurer of all the money, and they didn't have a lot. And all the while, he's pilfering it little by little because he's, he's driven by greed. That's Judas. A motley crew, yes. Outsiders, absolutely. Insignificant, yeah, from the world's point of view. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a beautiful little testimony as Paul looks around and says, you know what? The, look at the people that God saves. Look at the Christian community. There aren't many wise there aren't many profound, there aren't many respectable, there aren't many famous, there aren't many that are uh, praised by the world. As a matter of fact, most people that God seems to be saving are the lowly ones, are the needy ones, are the dependent ones, are the non-impressive ones, are the non-sophisticated ones, are the ones who cannot help themselves. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Join the bunch if you're a Christian, praise God. Oh, God, I'm insignificant, I'm lowly, I'm pathetic, I'm not like everybody else, I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm short, I'm, I don't have any gifts. Praise God, then you're a candidate for salvation. And adoption into the family of God to be secure with Him forever. And what's coming? Resurrection glory. Then we'll start talking. Resurrection glory, perfection for all eternity in the family of God. Got to get the right focus, people. 
We're not out here to impress the world. It's like today, a lot of American Christianity or Christianity around the world, and you read the headlines, it's a lot of the conversations about superstar Christian pastor so-and-so and his following. Superstar Christians. American Idol. American Christian Idol. That was not the Christianity of the apostles. They were not superstars. They weren't liked. They weren't respected. They were hated and despised by the world. They were chased out of town. They were persecuted. They were killed. Very different Christianity. That's what Christ calls us to is faithfulness. Faithfulness. So this should be encouraging for us that, as Jesus said, he didn't come in the world to pursue the, the righteous He didn't come to pursue those who were healed. He came to pursue the sick and the sinners. He came to seek and save those who were lost. Amen. So those are the 12 apostles. Not known for their high-profile superstar notoriety during the time of their ministry on the earth. As 10, 11 out of the 12 were murdered. Judas was replaced with Matthias. John ended up surviving into his 90s probably, but then he was consigned to a, an island as a prisoner at the end of his age. But if you go to Act, uh, Revelation 21 in the new heavens and the new earth, other than God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus himself, you know who gets eternal recognition in the new city of Jerusalem forever and ever and ever? Uh, none of us. But the apostles do. A perpetual reminder. Because when you go into the new heavenly city in the future, the foundation stones in the new Jerusalem have the names of the 12 apostles etched in those stones forever. God gives them their due recognition. And deservedly so. For they laid the foundation of the church. Thank God for his 12 apostles. And then finally, let's look at 17 to uh, 19. After Jesus calls these 12 apostles... He's going to begin the process of training them, by the way, to be an apostle, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. To be an apostle was a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift for the body of Christ, the church. This gift did not exist in the Old Testament. This gift was given after the resurrection of Christ, according to Ephesians 4, 7 and following. So there were no apostles in the Old Testament. It's a spiritual gift. This spiritual gift was given sovereignly by God and His Spirit. So it's a spiritual gift. And we know that when Matthias replaced Judas, Peter gave the qualifications to be an apostle. Because they had to replace Judas. There had to be 12, and only 12. Because they're called the 12. And Peter said, Okay, we need to replace the one apostle we lost in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And here are the qualifications. He had to be a man. Also, he had to be a man who was observing firsthand the ministry of Jesus from the, from the beginning until his crucifixion or resurrection. So he had to be around since the days of John the Baptist's preaching. Had to know the other apostles and had to have been aware of Jesus' ministry for three and a half years until his death. That was a qualification. If you were not an eyewitness of the earthly ministry of Jesus from the time of John the Baptist to his death you are not qualified to be an apostle that's why there are no apostles today so it was a spiritual gift oh you also had to be called personally by Jesus Christ to be an apostle that's why the apostle Paul qualifies Jesus Christ personally called him 
to be an apostle. He wasn't one of the 12. He was the special apostle to the Gentiles, a class by his own. So the role or the office of apostle is not something that goes on in succession. You don't pass it on to the next generation. There are no apostles today. There were only 12, and then Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. That is clear in Scripture. You also had to witness, be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. That is not true of anybody living today. So he's going to begin training them for the next two and a half years. And then uh, this summary statement by Luke in 17 through 19, Jesus came down with them. That was the 12 apostles. And he stood on a level place up on this mountain. Could be the uh, Mount of uh, the Beatitudes. So the parallel passage would be Matthew 5 through 7. And he gets on a place where he can stand level. And there was a large crowd of his disciples. So there's going to be three groups here that Jesus is about to preach to. He's got his 12 apostles. There's a massive crowd of his disciples before him. They've been following him. There's an attachment of some sort that's been formalized. So the first group was the 12 apostles. The second group is this massive group of disciples. There's a third group of people there. Verse 17 says, and there's a great throng of people. These are just unidentified, unnamed people who came from all over the place to get a miracle out of fascination, curiosity, whatever it is. That's why they're there. That's the third group. A great throng. This could be thousands and thousands of people. Thousands. Tens of thousands, maybe. A great throng of people from all, look where they came from, all Judea and Jerusalem, way down south, and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. Maybe some Gentiles are mixed into that crowd. Verse 18, all these people came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. See, what were they motivated by? For the most part, not uh, to be humble, to humble themselves and seek forgiveness from the Messiah. That wasn't their motive. Is oh, he's doing miracles. He's get, I'm going to go get healed. I'm going to go get fed. They had wrong motives for the most part. That's why they could follow him, be a disciple, and three years later, they could scream for his blood before Pilate. Crucify him! Crucify him! Because they didn't really know him at an intimate level with legitimate motives. For the most part, that would be the crowds. Come to hear him, be healed. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And you know what? Jesus wasn't vetting the people. Oh, okay, how loyal to, on a scale of 1 to 10, how loyal are you of me? He didn't do that. He was the compassionate Savior. Somebody was sick, he healed them. He healed them 100%. He cast out demons of every person. He was kind to everyone. When he fed them, the thousands of people with the bread, he fed everyone. He did not discriminate at that level as a gracious, good provider. There were no conditions. There was a condition about being forgiven of sin. And that was repentance of sin and acknowledgement of him as the God-man. But he was good to all of these people. A God of love, a God of grace. Verse 19, and all the people were trying to touch him. They were just crushing in on him. For power was coming from him and healing them all. The goodness of Jesus. I am looking forward to going on and hearing the blessed words of Jesus and his divine wisdom and also his ongoing grace towards sinners. With that, let's go ahead and pray to the Father and thank him for our time together. Father, we do thank you for our time together to look to your word and specifically the gospel of Luke. 
It is so rich, so deep, so many blessed reminders. Thank you for allowing us this time to get our eyes off of our busy, dis distracting week, the worries that confront us next week, to get our eyes off self and get them on Jesus. The purity of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the grace of the blessed Savior. Father, use this information to continue to allow us to grow in our own personal walk and love and devotion of you, to prick our hearts, to, con to convict us of sin, and thank you that we have a, a Savior we can go to to lay our sin before you. We know it's forgiven in his death and his resurrection because of your love for sinners. And God, if there's anyone who doesn't know Christ personally, that as we go through this study and they're confronted with the true Christ, who he really was. Blessed Savior, sovereign judge, that you would open their eyes to see him for who he truly is through your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, that they might bow the knee to you. We pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.